0: This is a DAS of Brussels. Let's try and consider Article 50 in uh, procedural terms uh, uh, to try and, uh, once again, kind of go around this. Now, my motivation for doing this is uh, it seems to be all that everyone anyone is talking about. Uh, and also, just in the last uh, week or so, I've had several people at meetings I've been to saying, oh, if only someone had told us about Article 50 before, then maybe we'd have made a different decision. Now, I know, uh, as you well know, good listener, that uh, we did a podcast about this uh, a long time ago. We talked about Article 50 and all the problems that are there. You can go back and listen to it uh, on our website at uh, www.adietofbrussels.com. Now, uh, in that, uh, I pointed out uh, a number of basic... Uh, dimensions of the Article 50 process that uh, uh, were pertinent then and are clearly pertinent now. The first of these is very clearly that Article 50 is not designed to reward an exiting state uh, from the EU. Instead it was there to say here is a procedure for leaving But we're also making it clear that there is a strong incentive not to use this procedure uh, ever because it puts the power of uh, agreeing the terms of uh, exit very much in the hands of the remaining Member States. Now uh, how does that work in practice? Well uh, it works uh, quite simply, at the point that a Member State notifies uh, the European Union Uh, of its intention to depart, then uh, there is the start of a defined period of negotiations between Member States. Now that means, uh, in the case of Article 50, as I think you all know by now, that there is a two-year period in which to uh, agree uh, the terms of exit and to begin establishing the post-exit relationship. And if at the end of that two-year period uh, there isn't an agreement to extend that period, then basically uh, the state leaves and and there's no particular arrangement. You fall back onto a kind of residual uh, situation under uh, international law, uh, and particularly the Vienna Convention uh, on Treaties. Now, during that two-year period, the process is that... uh, the uh, Union uh, negotiates and concludes an agreement uh, with the withdrawing state uh, which is uh, undertaken uh, by the Council uh, and uh, is agreed by a qualified majority of Member States and also it needs the uh, assent or, or the consent of the European Parliament. Now. What that means is that, in essence, uh, it's not about a negotiation between the two, a bilateral negotiation. It's rather that the uh, remaining member states agree a position, they make an offer, and then, in effect, it's up to uh, the exiting member states to uh, decide whether to accept that offer or not. So in extremis, you could imagine a situation where everyone waits around for 18 months and then uh, member states say, here's the deal, you've got six months in which to agree it. Uh, if you don't agree it, then you'll have nothing. Um, and you know it might not be a good deal, but it's better than the no deal that would ensue once the two-year process is uh, uh, out of time. This really matters uh, because uh, it 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 really highlights the uh, intention behind Article Fifty, which is to say, you know, that there is a price to exit, um, and that we don't really uh, want people to be leaving. And so here's a way to help encourage you to stay. Now, I think that's a very negative way of framing it. I think you know it's never good that you know if the best reason for. Uh, staying in is that the, the cost of leaving is uh, too high, then, you know, that's very negatively constructed. However, that's the situation that we have, um, but it, it also highlights the, the paradox of the situation. Now, at the time, when I did my original podcast, I said, you know, there is a gap, which is that uh, the starting point is from notification. Uh, to leave. And as we also well know now, uh, we are in the exciting bit uh, between uh, paragraph 1 and paragraph 2 of Article 50. So in paragraph 1 it says that a a member state may decide to withdraw from the Union in accordance with its own constitutional requirements. Paragraph 2 starts off with a member state which decides to withdraw shall notify the European Council of its intention. We've done the first bits, possibly, we can talk about that. Maybe uh, at some point uh, in another uh, process. But we've got a, a, a referendum which would seem to be uh, in effect a binding on uh, the UK. Uh, but what we clearly don't have is a notification. Uh, David Cameron said he couldn't give one because he wasn't going to be the leader and we needed to wait for somebody else to come into number 10 to replace him. We all thought that would be uh, not until September. However, through the vagaries of yeah, everything, Uh, we end up with uh, Theresa May uh, in office now here in the uh, the middle of uh, July. Now, she's made clear that uh, she is not going to notify the EU uh, in any kind of hurry. Now, originally she talked about uh, the autumn, now, uh, not least uh, at her press conference with uh, Angela Merkel in Berlin, she's talking about... uh, next year uh, at some point soon. Now there are two reasons for that delay. The first one is quite simply that the UK still doesn't know exactly what it wants, um, which is understandable since uh, nobody apparently prepared for anything. Uh, And uh, she is trying to balance a number of different imperatives. And you can listen to our previous podcast uh, for some discussion about where where we are on that. to that extent, that suits uh, the EU twenty-seven uh, because they also don't entirely know what they want. Actually, no, they don't know what they want, uh, and also there's the issue of how they actually operationalise Article fifty that nobody has really uh, thought through in great detail about how Article fifty works. But clearly, also uh, the UK is delaying because it is the last good hand that it can play in uh, the Article 50 process that once it does notify under paragraph 2, it largely loses its power. Now uh, let's think about that in in broad terms. Uh, Typically in negotiations of this kind uh, the two things that you uh, can uh, rely on are the ability to control the time and uh, the ability to uh, influence others you know, how, how much of weight do you have in the system and in in this system but once you actually start article 50 negotiations once you start that two-year period uh, the departing state has neither control over the time nor really over the uh, the degree of influence that it has because the union is working on a qualified majority Uh, and also because uh, you could have the European Parliament, um, and in that situation, uh, you know, where the departing state is also going to be largely excluded from, uh, well, certainly excluded from specific negotiations or discussions about this, but also uh, from uh, the broader thrust of uh, the EU's day-to-day activity, that it becomes very, very hard to maintain Uh, a a credible uh, weight in the system even if you are a large member state like the UK so uh, the incentive for the UK is to actually not start this that clearly comes with costs and I I can see two uh, costs the first one is that uh, The longer the UK waits, the less uh, likely uh, the EU27 are to be um, flexible in what they do. That they are uh, working uh, now towards uh, defining positions, defining process, uh, and that will only continue over time. So they will say this is the offer that we will offer uh, you at the point uh, of negotiation. Uh, starting after notification and so actually the degree of flexibility is likely to be relatively limited uh, and only getting more limited as we wait through time. In addition there's also an external factor which is that as long as the UK doesn't notify and doesn't indicate when it's going to notify there is a high degree of uh, economic uncertainty and financial uncertainty um, and we would be likely to see a considerable uh, degree of uh, market turbulence uh, in the autumn if this looks like this is been spun out uh, uh, in effect indefinitely. Now uh, that matters because that will put very great pressure on the, the British government to actually uh, declare its notification uh, or to make some kind of decision. Um, Clearly that will also contribute to domestic pressure on Theresa May uh, and we've already seen in her first question, uh, Prime Minister's questions uh, this week that her back benches are actually going to be the key problem for her, not uh, the Labour Party, in the management of Brexit. That uh, She has enough backbenchers who are determined that Brexit is uh, pursued uh, promptly, that uh, any kind of uh, shilly-shallying is going to be frowned upon uh, as we uh, go on. Two last points just on on, on process uh, uh, and procedure that are apparent at the the moment. Um, One of the things Article 50 isn't really clear about is about what happens if a country abandons its intention to withdraw. Now, there's nothing in Article 50 or anywhere else in the uh, Treaty on the European Union about how uh, this uh, uh, works. And as such, we have to fall back on uh, the Vienna Convention, which uh, essentially recognises that there is a right of a uh, participant state, signatory state, to abandon its uh, withdrawal from uh, a treaty. Now, that's uh, something which is slightly complicated by the fact that whilst the UK is a signatory of the Vienna Convention, not all other member states are. So there's a point of law. But in effect, the the Convention reflects customary uh, international law. Uh, So you would expect that that means that uh, the UK potentially has the unilateral right to suspend Article 50 processes that can say, we no longer want to leave. Uh, and uh, we just return to the status quo ante. Now, that's uh, something that you would imagine most member states would be happy with, although uh, you could also imagine that they might be a bit narked, especially if we're a long way down uh, the two-year process uh, for the UK then to change its mind about what it does. But that will be offset by the fact that nobody obviously seems to want the UK to be going, um, and certainly, you know, it wouldn't be attached to any uh, uh, implementation of the uh, new settlements that David Cameron agreed, um, and that would be presumably uh, manageable uh, in political terms. Now that matters because if we delay until uh, next year. Um, That means we potentially run through until 2019, uh, which takes us close to the date of the next general election, which has to be by May of 2020. Now, if there are extensions put in place by mutual consent, which might well happen if uh, everyone is uh, not messing around uh, and being difficult, that then that might give an incentive to the other member states to say, well, we'll give an extension, so that we run up to or over the general election result, and then depending on who comes in, that might be uh, a result uh, that might result in a new government coming in who have a different policy on Brexit. That there might be then a recognition of changed circumstances. I don't know what, so that we can actually uh, terminate this procedure without having to follow through. I think that's very much uh, uh, a shadow of a thought at the moment because at the moment we haven't even begun, let alone thinking about the end. But something worth keeping in mind uh, as we go through this process. That really gives a a sense of what Article 50 uh, dynamics look like. We're going to come back to this uh, time and again, no doubt, over the years. Um, But hopefully that gives you some idea of uh, where we are at the moment and quite why people are acting the way that they are.